Hey there, thanks for tuning in to episode two of the Maritime Gardening Podcast. Uh, I'm Dave Doggett, and I'm here with our host, Greg Otten. How are you doing today, Greg? Doing great. It's a sunny day. Things are getting warm. This is what we want. Yeah, exactly. I'm just coming out of a nice, nasty head cold, which is why we're recording this a couple days later than we normally would. But um, anyway, I feel a lot better. I may not sound a lot better, but that's okay, because you're going to do most of the talking. So. <laughs> Um, so yeah, anyway, uh, uh, for those who tuned into episode one, we, uh, we appreciate you taking the time to do that. We had a good response from that, uh, the kickoff episode. So what are we going to talk about today, Greg? Uh, we're going to talk about, uh, you know, general discussion on, on planting dates, you know, when things should be planted and, and that whole idea. Um, I'm going to give you a, a list of things that can go on the ground now if you're so inclined. Um, they don't have to go in the ground now, but if you want to put stuff in, if you want to have be eating food sooner, these are things that can go in the ground now. Um, my top five greens, um, and also uh, just a general discussion on uh, permaculture, um, very brief, just to give you an idea of of what that's all about, to give you an image in your mind of what that's all about. Uh, nice, nice. Thinking of trying something different this year, or if you've never tried gardening, maybe you want to just start off with the whole new way of doing things that uh, can be very much easier. Yeah, so, sounds like my way of doing things, so that's perfect. <laughs> that's perfect. So as I've heard, um, you know, a lot of people may not think that there's much that you can put in the ground until maybe later in May or, or whatnot. So I guess we'll just let you uh, get started and tell us otherwise. All right. Yeah, well... You know, a lot of people have in their mind this notion that, oh, you can't plant anything till the end of May or Victoria Day or some people call it May 2-4 weekend. Um, I'm not quite sure why. Huh. Uh, <laughs> but um, there's a lot of things that can go on the ground uh, earlier than that. Some things can go on the ground as soon as the soil can be worked. They might not germinate right away, but they can, you know, if you have a, a large garden, uh, you don't want to have to do everything in one day. Um, you can just sort of chip away at things and the, the seeds won't be damaged by frost or cold and they'll come up when they're ready. Certain plants, not every plant. Um, a lot of plants, cold or, or frost or whatever, just kills them instantly. But it all comes down to frost dates. Some plants, the foliage just can't take frost, and it kills the whole plant. Mm -hmm. But also soil temperatures. Uh, a lot of seeds have a certain soil temperature that they need to germinate. And if they don't have it and don't have it consistently enough, or if the soil, let's say the seed begins to germinate, you have a nice warm day, but then it gets really cold at night, and the soil doesn't hold its heat, uh, that whole process just stops and, and, and it can't start again. Um, but some seeds are fine with that. They can take that. So, you know, that's why certain things can go in at a certain time of year and certain things can't. So that's the question about planting dates. When is the soil warm enough and uh, when does the risk of frost go away? And there's no fixed date for that. It really depends. You know, for instance, I went and looked uh, today on the Farmer's Almanac, which would, many would consider a very reliable source, and I looked up Halifax, and it said May 1st. And I wouldn't put... They're saying that's the last frost date, May 1st. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, that's a bit... I wouldn't be putting out tomatoes right now. Maybe you could. Maybe I'd put out a, a couple, just, you know, just as experimental uh, ones. Yeah. Uh, and maybe you can. Maybe it is. Um, you know, they're just basing that on all their existing data. Um, but the other thing is I looked at Kentville and Digby and Inverness... And it all said May 1st because it was all based on the Eastport, Maine Climate Center uh, right, right. <laughs> indication. Yeah. So yeah. that's, you know, this isn't Eastport, Maine. 
And there's no. a lot of variability even between like I live out towards Peggy's Cove and it's almost like Alpine here. So uh, I'll go, you know, uh, visit someone a little further inland and it might be five, ten degrees warmer. Yeah. I was working on a property yesterday and there were black flies everywhere. I mean, I was swarmed and yeah. they're not even here where I am. Right. Um, you might get the odd, uh, you might see one or two, but they're not even biting right now. Whereas there I was being yeah. you know, destroyed by them. Um, so there's a lot of variability even within a half-hour drive in this province because we've got a coast and we've got sort of low-lying areas and mountains and we've got valleys and um, just different conditions. Yeah, and I mean even uh, you know New Brunswick, it, it's a whole lot different around say Moncton than it might be up in you know the, the St. John River Valley up around Fredericton. Oh, Fredericton's almost like southern Ontario, yeah. you know, in the summer. Yeah. Um, so, you know, my point is that dates are very inaccurate. You use them as a guideline, um, but really, wherever you are, your piece of land, that area, you need to sort of do little experiments every year, try putting things out at certain times of the year, and see what happens. And what I want to move towards personally, and I, I just had this idea last year, is instead of using, because I've always just based everything on dates and, you know, look at the long-term forecasts and dates. And I honestly think that's a more reliable indicator. And this is as an angler, and you might know something about this, Dave. Sure. But something I used to do every year, the first sort of thing I would catch would be smelts. Mm-hmm. And anybody that knows anything about smelts, they don't come up the rivers. It, it smelts is a tiny little fish. Um, that uh, people who uh, traditionally would net, um, you can also jig them, um, but it's kind of inefficient. But yeah. anyway, it's, it's a, these tiny fish, they live in the ocean, and once a year they come up the rivers to spawn, and you can just get like tons of them. And they, they, you, know, they're very, you catch them fresh, you usually catch them, and you have everybody over and you have a big party and you eat a bunch. A buddy of mine brought some over this year and I ate 20. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one yeah. eat 20 souls. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my stomach. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, anyone that knows anything about smelt fishing, you don't base it on a date. You, you know that so- it happens sometime in April, but what you listen for is that mm-hmm. these peepers outside, these little frogs that start coming out and trying to mate. You, you know, you, you start putting your head out the window every night when it's dark, and once you hear that sound, you know it's time to go um, net some smelts. Right. And it's very, re- it's very reliable, much more reliable than anything else because those frogs has, have evolved to – they're not going to start doing that too early because they could freeze to death or you know, the, you know, they seem to know. I don't know how they know and I don't need to know how. Yeah. Just know that they have been doing this for a long time and that's a timing thing. Um, and I honestly think that that's probably a better way to go with your gardening because you're going to have – a whole bunch of plants on your property and other things going on, certain birds that show up and so on, they're not going to do anything too early because they have evolved to just instinctively know when to do things. Um, and if all the ones that didn't instinctively know when to do things didn't make it and didn't pass their genes on. Right. So, you know, it's better just to sort of tune yourself into what's going on around you and make that your start date. So for me, certain things like that can be planted it might say on the package, plant um, as soon as soil can be worked. When I do that here where I live, nothing happens for weeks um, just because it's just so cold here. So I've decided to try this year all those things that say plant as soon as soil can be worked. I put them in the ground as soon as I could hear peepers. So I figure if it's warm enough for a frog to mate, <laughs> it's yeah, that's probably a good point. warm enough 
yeah. for uh, a paid germinate or something like that. Yeah, yeah. All the things that light cold. I'm going to try that and see what happens. Um, and everything I just checked yesterday, and a lot of the th- many of the things I planted that are early things are up. So uh, I think there's other things too. There's certain you know when the maple tree buds open, when you know you start you know there's a dandelions everywhere. When the dandelions open up, you know, when this kind of dandelion, you see that yellow, that's probably an indication of something. There's probably a lot of indicators of things that aren't going to happen until all lots of other things can happen. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to try to start making a list of just being observant and marking those things down. And hopefully over time, I can have a long list of things that are timed with other things. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. When the tulips come up, when the asparagus comes up, when the rhubarb comes up, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, that gotcha. would be. If you know all of those things, then you'll know when it's the right time to do something on your property in your tiny little microclimate, wherever you are. And and your timing will be a lot more uh, accurate and you won't waste as much time. So couldn't you test out, you know, maybe a week apart and try a few different, try planting some seeds a few weeks apart in different parts of your garden and just label it differently to see which ones work the best or... Yeah, I do that all the time. Um, you, you know, like a garden, and I think is the original laboratory. Mm. Uh, you can do genetic experiments, and you know, you can yeah. plant seeds, and if they die, uh, right. no one's going to challenge your ethics. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Right. You can have a lot of fun, but yeah, it's you know, sometimes it's good to try something. Don't plant everything because then you might not have any more seeds. But gotcha. it's good. To, you know, and there's been years I've planted beans. Beans can't go out till really the end of May. There's been years I planted them in the middle of May and they grew and they were fine. Sure. There's years where I did that and they just rotted and died. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's always worth doing. I mean, every year I'll always put, always tell myself not to do it, and I do it every year. I put tomatoes out early and I kill them. Yeah. Uh, I do it every single year, and I was just thinking about it the other day because they're selling the transplants at the. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we just got we just got a, I picked up a few yesterday with my my folks and my my sons planted them in a little planter along the side of my, my parents' house, so hopefully hopefully it doesn't get too cold. Might be okay next to a house like that. That yeah. sometimes uh, depends on, hopefully they're, they're on the south side of the house. Um, very important that they're on the south side of the house, although if yeah. they're transplants, they may need to be hardened off. Right, um, right. Anyway, we're not talking about that today. Sure, sure. So what are you planting in late April, early May? Okay, so these, I'm not planting all of these things, and there's this list is not exhaustive. Because sure. um, no one wants me to listen to me list fifty things, right? Um, and I'm also, you know, generally speaking, I'm not going to go into varieties. I'm just going to speak to particular plants, and you can choose yep. different varieties, whatever you like. Um, so peas, and, and I put my peas in April. You know, I think the first week of April, because peas can take it. You know, um, but they're just coming up now. I, I put them in probably three weeks ago, and they're an inch high. So yeah. I could have put them in a week ago and they'd be an inch high. They grew when they wanted to grow. So if I put them in last week, they'd be an inch high right now because right, peas usually right. start, you know, they, they move pretty quick. Um, so planting them really didn't, now I don't have to worry about it, right? So I can focus on other things. But peas are tough. I'd put them in the ground usually April 1st and they come up when they come up and they usually don't rot out. Um, and same with uh, carrots, beets, uh, carrots and parsnips. I usually plant those very early as well. Um but again, so I put my carrots and parsnips in three weeks ago, and they're they're just starting to come up now. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, if I'd probably put them in last week, they'd probably be the same height. So I was a bit early right. with that, but the seed those seeds can take it. So they were they can take sort of freezing and sure. cooling and being wet and cold. Some some seeds can, some seeds can't. Okay. Um, 
broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, collards. Uh, collards, I'd wait a little bit longer. Uh, they don't like uh, super cold. Uh, once they're grown, the actual greens uh, taste better once uh, it gets cold. Uh, leeks, uh, green onions. I planted green onions a few weeks ago, and my green onions are up. Uh, uh, different kinds of greens. Uh, parsley as well. You can put those seeds in the ground early. They'll take it. Uh, turnip and most most greens. Um, and where? What? What's the date right now? Uh, May. It's May May ninth. Yeah, today. Um, so another thing you could maybe try. It depends on your soil and its temperature and what it's made of. But it's a bit early, but you could put potatoes in the ground. Potatoes, the soil has to be 5 degrees Celsius. Potatoes cannot freeze. They really don't like that. Um, you know, that being said, there's every year I'll have a couple of potatoes that I did not pick, and they'll grow. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know how that works. Cause I, there's been years I tried putting potatoes in the ground in September, and they all just rotted. But every year I'll have unpicked potatoes that grow. So why is it when I plant them in the fall – they die, but yeah. if I don't pick them, they're fine. There's something going on there. <laughs> There's something. Uh, I want to figure that one out. Yeah. Uh, anyway, if the soil is, you know, just get a thermometer, and um, I know you've got one because you're you're a fly fisherman. Um, it's yeah. The same sort of one. You stick that, you know, put it at the depth you're going to put the potato, and and you know, bury it and leave it for five minutes, and then take it out. If it's five degrees, you can probably stick your potatoes in there. They're, you know, they might not do anything for a while, but that's okay. It's it's just one more thing done that you don't have to do later on. Uh, I'm going to plant a few this week, and uh, but I'm not going to plant. I plant a lot of potatoes. I'm gonna, I think we have a whole episode on potatoes. They're just the most yeah. wonderful thing. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm going to plant a few. This a red potato is one that comes in really early, hmm. so I like to plant those first so that I got potatoes. You know, in uh, you know sometime in July I start being able to get potatoes out of my garden, which is just great. Um, so, you know, that's an, you could try that. It really depends. The soil's got to have that, that heat in it. Otherwise, the potatoes are just rot and die. Mm. Um, but in like two weeks, just wait like a week or two and you can plant them. I usually use plant tomato, potatoes in the middle of May, and I've never had a problem with them rotting out. Okay. Um, as long as your soil has reasonable drainage, you know, right. um, they, they seem to do fine. Nice. What would your top five greens be? You know, greens, uh, if you haven't got a lot of space, you know, greens are a pretty good um, bang for your buck because a lot of them can be sort of harvested. You know, when you buy kale at the grocery store, they just grab the whole plant and they cut it off and they it's gone. They kill it, right? Uh, but if you have kale in your backyard, you just snap off leaves as you need them. You sort of slap, snap them off from the, from the bottom up and there's a, a way to do it that's sort of ideal for the plant. Um, but every variety of kale I'm aware of, you can harvest it as you want it. So, you know, you plant like, you know, you buy six kale transplants at the garden store for two bucks and you've got kale for months and months, maybe even until November, maybe even December if you're, you know, especially in Halifax where it's, you know, so temperate. Mm. Um, so kale's a great plant. That would be my number one green because it's just, uh, it just keeps coming and keeps producing and, and once things freeze in the in the in the in the fall, it actually tastes better. And I mean, a lot of people, the kind you would see in the grocery store typically is called uh, Scotch curly kale, and it seems to be the popular kind. But I would say it's the least flavorful of the varieties. Um, another variety is called Red Russian. It can get huge. I mean, I've seen them t- over two feet high. 
Um, and it tastes that red Russian kale tastes better than Scotch curly oh, kale, yeah? in my opinion. Um, it also looks much more impressive. It's just yeah. like this giant thing. And there's another kind of kale that's, I think it's not as tough. I think it likes it a bit warmer because it's basically from Italy. It's called Lassanato kale. Another term for it is Tuscan or dinosaur kale. And it and it's called dinosaur kale because it, it can grow like three feet high. Oh, yeah. That is by far the best tasting kale I've ever had. It's really, really good. Um, but you can't plant that quite as early. I would plant that middle of May. I haven't had very good luck trying to start it early. Were uh, Were you into kale before it kind of became this trend? This trend and mainstream and all the celebrities yabbing about it. Yes, I yeah. was on the kale scene before it was cool. <laughs> there you um, go. Because I was just a gardener, and you know I. The traditional green that everybody grows, and they're one of my top five. Uh, when I would have grown up with this, was we would have had Swiss chard, right? Yeah. Um, but I was just, I'm very sort of curious person. So I was in the store and they had this other thing called kale. And I said, oh, I'll give that a, you know, I tried kale, I tried collard greens, I tried all kinds of things. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, kale was a great one. It's just a beautiful, you know, when you, I just sauteed a bit with with garlic and you know, diced up bacon because <laughs> it tasted one Man, slice. That sounds bacon, good. One slice of bacon and a whole pan of kale, and it tastes like the whole thing is bacon. <laughs> um, so you know, I don't know if you're a vegetarian. Whenever you use maybe sun dried tomatoes or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, that would work. But if you're not bacon, one slice of bacon, and you but you you can cook like you know this giant kale dish, and you know for like a family of four, and the whole yeah. thing. It's way to get my kids to eat it. We yeah, call yeah, it sure. We call them bacon greens as our marketing. <laughs> gotta, get into it. Gotta do um, what you so, gotta do. So kale's one. Uh, kohlrabi is another very. Um, uh, not a lot of people know about it. Um, I bought kohlrabi seeds at a dollar store, and I've planted them that year because they were like thirty cents. And uh, I've planted kohlrabi every year since. It's a plant that sort of, if you look at it, it looks like a turnip. I guess it's got this turnipy sort of thing at the bottom. And traditionally, as, as I understand, and this is from an Eastern Europe, you know, Germany, Czech Republic, that sort of thing, uh, or former Czechoslovakia, um, it was grown for that root. But in my opinion, the root is the worst part of, of the kohlrabi. It grows these huge, thick greens that are very similar to collard greens, except I don't know anyone that's ever cooked collard greens, but you have to cook them for a very long time to, to get them tender. They're tough. They're yeah, really I do them in a pressure cooker. Yeah. yeah. So imagine a collard green that you can like cook in two minutes, you know, and that's kohlrabi. It's got a similar flavor. It's got an, and it, it's a very green, intense green. Like people come over to your house and they're, they're eating these greens and it's just this, it just looks like you're eating the elixir of life sort of thing. Oh, nice. Beautiful, vibrant green color. Uh, they don't look like much when you pick them. It's when you cook them, they become this really green color, and they taste really good. So they're they're like a uh, a collard, except they cook in in minutes, right? You just nice. quick toss them around. Uh, Swiss chard, of course, um, and there's different kinds of kohlrabi. There's white, red, and there's also various varieties of uh, like what they call giant kohlrabi. They often cost they might cost another you know most seeds are two ninety nine a pack. The giant ones tend to cost no most seeds are a buck ninety nine a pack. From what I've seen, giant kohlrabis are two ninety nine a pack, but still, it's worth it because you get these huge leaves and they just look amazing and they yeah. taste great. Um, Swiss chard, uh, I've tried many varieties. A uh, giant Ford hook. It's a lot of people like to plant the rainbow Swiss chard, and that's fine. 
Uh, I find I like everything big. I mean, I, I find giant Ford hook. That's a heirloom variety. It's it's just a great, more reliable plant. I've had mixed results with the rainbow kale or spinach, and it doesn't taste any different. It just looks nice. Mm. Um, uh, spinach is a great one. Um, you know, it would be bottom of my list. Same with lettuce because it. it you know, Swiss Kohlrabi and kale, they're going to keep giving you greens. You know, that one plant is going to keep giving you. Yeah. Um, spinach sort of burns out. It, you know, it does not like heat. Right. And as soon as it's, you're getting some, at some point in July, it's just done. It starts going to seed and doesn't taste good anymore. And same with lettuce. You know, you, you got to, there's all this timing you have to do with, it gets a bit of a, you got to really like lettuce to want to grow it all the time because you got to have plant one row this week and then two weeks later plant another row and two weeks later you got to be very, sort of on top of it and yeah. there's lots of things that love lettuce and slugs love lettuce you know everything loves lettuce because it's so tender and so you know nice um so and also lettuce can be difficult to grow i found a variety called uh paris island cost i don't know what the cost stands for no clue um but it's like a romaine lettuce like you'd get in the grocery store only it actually tastes really good mm. and um, it's pretty you know I grew great lettuce with that variety the first time I tried, um, whereas other forms of lettuce, uh, you know, have very mixed results. Um, Low maintenance. Yeah, I mean, leaf lettuce is easy to grow, but it doesn't taste like anything. Uh, yeah. <laughs> flavor, you know, flavor is really big with me. I love to cook. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's just not just about. You know, I like plants that are really easy to take care of, low maintenance, sort of just grow on their own as long as you give them the conditions they want. Um, but also things that taste really good in your yeah. cooking. Uh, so, sure. yeah, that uh, Paris Island. Uh, but spinach and lettuce, those are sort of plants, or especially uh, that Paris Island. You don't take off leaves as you need them. You just take the whole plant in, you just cut it off and take it in. Um, that's that's it. I mean, little tiny lettuce will grow out of the root, but they really don't. They usually don't amount to much. Right. <laughs> Every year, you sort right. of think they're going to do something, but they're just these little pathetic plants that don't really amount to much. Really, the, cut the whole thing off when it's as biggest and best, and eat it. <laughs> nice. Yeah, sounds good. I'm getting hungry on this episode. <laughs> that was good. That's what yeah. happened. All right, so that was you. You covered your top five there. Top five greens, I think. And yep. uh, kale, kohlrabi, Swiss chard, spinach, and lettuce. That's probably uh, nice. Yeah, I'll mention the show notes at the end of the episode again. We'll we'll have all this stuff listed. But uh, what else did you want to go over before uh, we uh, wrap this one up? Just want to talk a little bit about an idea that some people want. I don't know. The first year I tried, I heard about permaculture a number of years ago, and I adapted my garden to this approach to gardening, and the results were incredible. And I've really never gone back, and I absorb every information I can get about it. And you know, it's one of those things where there's no one way to do it. You have to sort of figure out a way that that you like, that works for you, that works with the resources you have, and and is ideal for the location you're at. But a lot of the information on it sounds very complicated. It's much, it's very overcomplicated by the people that discuss it. And really, over the course of the show, I want to try to get out of that because mm -hmm. the beauty of permaculture is that it's it's not nearly as complicated as conventional gardening, and it's way less labor intensive. Way it has way fewer inputs. You don't have to stand out there watering your garden every morning getting eaten alive by mosquitoes all the things all the things that i associate that people associate with gardening that yeah. make it a chore yeah um many of them either go away completely or they're greatly reduced by a permaculture approach to gardening so right. what i'm going to do is just try to create an image in your mind what i experience in my garden 
when it's fully, you know, when it's in full swing. So let's say July, August, you know, but that's when June even, we stop buying produce. We don't buy produce from some point in June onward. As soon as we start getting things out of our garden, we just, the garden drives our diet. So there's a certain time, you know, early June, we start getting spinach and uh, we start getting some greens and some radishes because I've got a large garden. We start eating a lot of those <laughs> because mm-hmm. you know, the garden yeah. starts driving your diet. And then other things start growing. So we, and the spinach sort of is going away, but the kale's coming on. So we're starting to eat more kale and more greens. And maybe we have some baby carrots. So we can eat some of those things. And then a bit later on, we get the peas coming. So we're eating peas all the time. And, you know, your diet is being driven by the garden. I guess the image I want to give is imagine if you walk out your back door and there's a, a forest in your backyard. And I'm using the, the concept of a forest because permaculture is supposed to work the way a forest works. But it's not a forest of trees. And when I say work the way a forest works, I mean it sort of takes care of itself. Just There's a forest behind my house. There actually is a forest. And I don't water it. I don't fertilize it. I don't weed it. It just takes care of itself. There's places where you know, certain things grow and they're always there and they're always fine. So the whole notion of permaculture is to approach, is to copy the way forests work and sort of copy those systems in your garden. So imagine you've got a forest behind your house, but instead of it being full of spruce trees and pine trees and, you know, um, uh, bramble or whatever, it's got other kinds of plants growing in. It's got zucchini and beans and different kinds of greens and tomatoes and potatoes and, and different root vegetables. You know, whenever you want to have a nice meal, you just walk out your back door, you go into that food forest and you take the things that you'd like to eat that day, and they're completely fresh, right? I mean, the way we get food now is you go to a grocery store, you you, you buy food that was picked days or weeks ago, yep. and you stick it in your fridge, and it sits there, and you try to eat it before it goes bad. Yep. Um, so if you have a that sort of a permaculture garden in your backyard, it's a whole different approach. It's land you own anyway. It's just sitting there sucking up lime. Right. And That's fertilizer. Right. Um, so instead, you know, you go back there and all the things you like to eat or maybe some things you're going to learn to like to eat, mm-hmm. they're all there and you just pick them as you need them. It, you go out in the backyard, you're out for five minutes, you come back and you've got a bowl of, of vegetables or maybe fruit. My, my strawberries are coming in right now. We're going to have strawberries. We've got a variety that produces all summer long. It's fantastic. Um, so you come in, you know, you go out there for five minutes, you come back with a bowl full of produce and you know, uh, you're just eating all this fresh organic stuff all the time. You have to stay on top of it or you're giving it to your friends because you're, you're not sometimes right. you get overwhelmed. You know, there's too many things. Right. Um, so it's just a wonderful uh, thing to do. If you're interested in this, think of that goal in your mind. Um, wouldn't it be nice to have that? And then you start just doing little things to work towards that. You don't have to get there in one year. Um, you can have a sort of long-term plan that you chip away at when you have time and maybe a very short term, okay, I'm going to do this this year. And all you have to do really, it's just like any other garden, generally in principle, except this is all I'm going to say about how to get there today, is to put a mulch. Once the plants are up a few inches, you put like an inch of some sort of mulch over the soil. Don't let that soil be exposed to the sun. The sun ha- the soil has right. to be covered in something, just like in a forest. A so- you never see bare soil in a forest unless there's been some sort of That's flood true. or you know, yeah. or soil erosion or something like that. It's always covered in needles and leaves and sticks and stuff like that. So you do the same thing in your garden and you use whatever. Don't go to the garden store and buy 
bags of this mulch or that. Just use what's around. Use some, you know, if your neighbor threw out some leaves, you grab those bags, run them over with your lawnmower a few times so they don't, you know, when you run over leaves, they don't blow away as much. Run them over and throw that, make that your mulch. If yeah. You mowed your lawn with a bag on, use that. If there's a stable nearby and, and there's like a place where they throw all the whole old horse manure, there's usually in with the horse manure, there's like straw and hay and stuff like that. You can use that too. It tends to have seeds in it, but you know, it's not a big deal and depending on the scale of your garden to deal with those seeds. But that's step one is to just get into the idea of, of mulching. And there's many yeah. reasons why. Uh, I don't want to get into that today. Yeah. But you know, bear that, you know, if you want to try permaculture, aside from reading and absorbing all the stuff on YouTube, um, the simplest way of thinking of it is it's just like the kind of garden you have in your mind already, except there's always a mulch. Kind of the way people have their – people have been using it for ages for their flower gardens. Yeah. Right? They always put this mulch everywhere. Yeah. And why do you do that, right? Because you don't have to weed it and you don't have to water it so much. Well, why? That's exactly – it does the same – it works the same way in your garden. Cool. Um, exactly the same. And the worms love it. Makes them happy. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, so – Anybody who listened to the first episode uh, is going to start to realize that the whole permacu- permaculture angle is is going to be an underlying tone throughout the show. It's just going to make, if you're new to gardening or if you've been gardening for years and you find it too hard, it's just such a, it's a way to make that easy for you. Um, you, you wouldn't believe the difference uh, in the results you're going to get with less effort. Um, well, that's what everybody's about now anyway, doing less and getting more, <laughs> exactly right. So, um, so it's yeah, uh, perfect. Yeah, yeah, it's a wonderful. It's a way of just you're figuring out a way to cooperate with nature, yeah, um, rather than trying to control it. And it'll work. Uh, it works really, really well. And we'll talk more about it as we go on. Uh, yeah. I'll keep chipping on. I don't want to give a giant uh, no, lecture no. diatribe on it, but sure. Uh, so yeah, those uh, those of you who want to check the show notes, I'm going to summarize uh, a lot of what Greg talked about. We'll list. Uh, the, his top five greens and some of the other uh, vegetables that he mentioned in there. Um, some of the ones I had never heard of, for sure. I'm going to be Googling those, and we'll put some links in. And uh, if you want to uh, check that out, just go to maritimegardening.com slash 002. And I think that's it for today, Greg, correct? That's it. Thanks a lot. It was uh, great talking. All right, and uh, we'll see you guys all in the next episode. Take care. Have a great day.